Good morning. Thank you for being here. Thank you for your giving today. And we are going to continue our study in the life of King David. We began a couple of weeks ago, and the name of that message was The Purposes of God. It was a text out of the book of Acts that uh, reminded us that the way the early church viewed David is that he served the purposes of God in his generation. That's what we're doing. And, and let me remind you of a couple of things, just to be sure we understand where we're going in all of this. When we're talking about serving the purposes of God, we're talking about it in two, two dimensions at least. Number one, we, we live for Him. We do a work for Him. Okay? But we also, the purpose of God for all of us is to become like Him. And sometimes we forget that God's working on two different levels at the very least. And sometimes those things overlap. Sometimes one seems to make us forget about the other one. But our goal is to not only please Him by, by serving Him, but it's also to please Him by looking like Him. I tell you, I, uh, I'm amazed at something. I really am. I, I'm amazed at how much, the older I get, how much I look like my dad. Uh, at first, at first it was just my hands. I was driving down the road and I thought, oh my, it, it took my breath away. I looked at my hands on the steering wheel and I said, those are my daddy's hands. Where did they come from? But you know what has started happening in, in the last couple of years? It's not frequent, but every now and then I'll pass by a mirror, I'll just pass, and I would swear that I just saw my dad. And I look back and I said, no, it's me, it's me. But what I'm saying is the more mature I get, the more I look like my dad. And every time I think that, I need to ask myself the question, is that happening in the spiritual realm? Am I looking more like my heavenly father in the spiritual as I'm looking more like my physical father in the natural. Now I know that breaks down when you push it so far because not all of us look like our dad. Some look like our mothers. Some look like our grandparents or an aunt or an uncle or whatever. But, um, but the point I'm trying to make is in the spiritual realm, we all, like Amy Grant saying about 100 years ago, we all have our father's eyes and we are to be not only serving him, but looking like him. So we began by acknowledging the purposes of God. We, and, and this, the reason I'm reviewing is I want to be sure you understand, this is not a sermon series about historical facts so that you can know more about the life of David. This is a message about the life of David so that each of us can get a better grip on how God works in our lives. David is a great example of that. And I, I tell you, when you read the Psalms, and I try to read this, some Psalms every day, uh, the thing about the Psalms that is so beneficial is that it covers David in every mood of his spiritual existence. I read sometimes and I say, how can I doubt God? Listen to these words. How can I doubt God? Then I read a Psalm where he's so upset and so angry with his enemies. He hopes that they and their children will die and the Psalm ends. 
You, you want, you want a, another verse to say, oh, I was just in a bad mood, Lord. Forgive me for my stupidity. You want that verse, but it just ends. It ends right there and you got to go on to something else. And we all have days like that. We have moments like that. So we said, as we began to understand the way God works in our lives, we can see a good model by looking at David. Did you know that there is more about David concerning the details of his life, more about David than anyone else in Scripture? Oh, I know that every page of Scripture is about Jesus, but I'm talking about the details of life. David leads the way, and I think it's because there's so much we can learn from this man. So we began by understanding where Israel was. We were introduced to the last judge and the, probably the first vocational prophet um, as far as Israel was concerned, Samuel. Then we read a little bit about Saul and David. We began the second week, what we call his journey. And we found out about the call of God on David's life. We found out uh, how God uses us behind the scenes. You remember how David was a shepherd? And when nobody knew what was going on in his life, if David hadn't given testimony, nobody would have known anything about those days of his life. But he fought the lion, he fought the bears, he learned to have a shepherd's heart during those days when he worked behind the scenes. And then God promoted him to bring him in. He learned uh, and had a musical gift, it was amazing. And he was known as a musician. And when Saul was tormented by an evil spirit, um, and couldn't sleep, they brought David in because of his reputation of producing soothing and worshipful music. And though Saul and David probably never met during those days, David would have been sitting on the other side of a veil or, or another section of the tent. But David was used of God to bring a calming effect to the life of Saul. And then we said, when your journey begins, there's what you do that nobody knows about. There's what you do that you don't ever get the credit for. And then suddenly you find yourself being brought into the spotlight. And we find David in that momentous battle with Goliath. And that's uh, um, the, probably the most famous story about David, his battle there in the Valley of Elah. But we also discovered last week that once God, now, now I hope you heard it. If you didn't, I'm going to repeat it this week. Once you begin that journey with God, it won't be long before God makes your purpose in life very evident. It may be musically, it may be as a writer, it could be as a, a, a mom raising kids. Wherever you are, God has a purpose for you. Truck driver, the list goes on and on. Every vocational um, calling is a calling and it's honorable, but you've got to find what God has called you for. But when he begins to promote you, hear me, he usually will turn the spotlight on you and you'll find that you will meet someone nearby. We never like this. And please don't stop and look at someone when I say this. But you will usually find when God begins to work in your life in earnest, you will find yourself near someone who is either under the judgment of God or under the severe chastisement of God. And what you will find is that 
as you are being elevated, there is an absolute hindrance in your life that you begin to say things like, if it wasn't for this, I could be happy. If it wasn't for this person, I could be full of joy. If it wasn't for this individual, I could fulfill God's purpose for my life. But what you find out is they're not going anywhere. And furthermore, you find out that God put them there. Now, let me tell you this, when you, and, and it, could, it might not be a person, it usually is, but it could be a job, it could be a circumstance, it could be, it could be a half dozen things, but usually it's a person. And let me tell you, when you begin to interact with this person under judgment or chastisement, they make no sense. We're going to find out next week as we continue the story that David calls on his dear friend Jonathan and says, what is your father thinking? What is he doing? I know he's trying to kill me. It makes no sense. And can I tell you something else this person does or this circumstance does, this job does? It, it, it not only does it make no sense, but it gives you an incredibly poor self-image you take on the problems of that person under judgment or that job that's dysfunctional or that opportunity that's not hitting on all cylinders. You, you personalize it and before long you have a poor self-image. And if you don't have a poor self-image or maybe in addition to your poor self-image, you will have a poor outlook. Nobody can talk faith to you. Nobody can encourage you. Nobody can lift you up. You're rotten in your mind. The life of, uh, that you're living is rotten. The circumstances are rotten. God's not doing anything about it. But you've got to remember God is doing something that is beyond our wildest expectations. He's changing us into the image of his son. Who even the son of God learned through the things that he suffered. When you are in the midst of this person or circumstance that is under God's judgment or under God's chastisement. Nobody can tell you anything that will change your mind about the person. Nobody will tell you anything that will change your mind about the problem. And you are stuck in that place until you begin to understand and believe that God loves you with an indescribable, unstoppable, unfathomable love. And he will love you when you don't even think he loves you. You say, well, okay, that's wonderful. Not when you're stuck with the person. And let me tell you this, it's an adage, but it's true. Hurting people hurt people. Hurting people hurt people. And where you're at, what you're facing, what you're going through is not right. It's not fair. And it's probably not going away anytime soon. That's why the two great commandments, this reflects what God's doing in our lives. The two great commandments are to love the Lord your God with all of your heart and soul, mind and strength. And what's number two? Be happy and fulfilled in all that you do. That's not it. Oh, oh yeah, I remember, I remember. Live life in such a way that there is no problem, no difficulty and no sorrow. Maybe, maybe that's number three. I remember what number two is now. Love your neighbor as yourself. And those are two, that, let me put it to you this way. That's why God will constantly be working in your life, teaching you to love him. And God will constantly be working in your life, teaching you to love your neighbor as, you, as yourself. So the name of the lesson today is when the king hates you. 
Let me ask you this question. What hates you? Who hates you? It might be a person. I mean, some of you, I just saw somebody do. No, I, I didn't see that. I'm just kidding. It may be a person. It may be an organization, maybe a job. But there's something, and I call it the king because it has authority. You can't get out from under it. Maybe a person, maybe an organization, maybe it's just life. Maybe it manifests itself in work. Maybe it manifests itself in the family. You know, sometimes the king that hates us is just being put in a place where the meshing of two different personalities can sometimes make life so different. It's sometimes, sometimes the person that frustrates you doesn't hate you, but you're just so different than them. It's just hard to mesh yourselves together. And now I want to give you, the, I need to give you these qualifiers and I don't have time to really go over them, but I would encourage you to read Total Forgiveness because R.T. Kendall does a good job of saying what forgiveness is and forgiveness is not. When I say you've got to come to terms with that which hates you, that doesn't mean you need to cave into it. Paul told people who were in slavery and bad situations in 1 Corinthians 7, he says, if you can get your freedom, if you can do anything to make your life better, do it. But if you can't, then know that God will work with you. And God will be with you through all of this stuff that you're going through. So this is not a message about you've got to just lose your identity, lose your opinion, and cave into what's wrong around you. But it is a lesson about how do we cope with life as we're becoming more like Jesus, as we're serving him, and as we're learning to get a grip on that thing in life that hates us. When the king hates you, there's one verse, two verses rather, that I want us to focus in. Now you'll, you, you see from your notes that the story in scripture we're talking about today is found in chapter 18 of 1 Samuel and the first part of chapter 19. But we don't have time to read all of that. But there's one verse, excuse me, I did it again, two verses that typify what's going on in the life of David. Uh, and, and, it, and it's interesting that it has nothing to do with David other than he's in the middle of it. When Saul realized that the Lord was with David and that his daughter Michael loved David, Saul became still more afraid of him and he remained his enemy the rest of his days. I wish I could tell you it had a happy ending. I wish I could tell you, if you just hang in there and be sweet, everybody will love you. Oh, please. Sounds like a country music song. It doesn't work that way. The principal characters are David, Michael, Saul, and Jonathan. And here's the central truth. And this is something we need to learn as we begin our journey with God. As God builds your life, you will find friends, you will find allies, and you will find enemies. Give friends the loyalty and love they deserve. Give allies reason to trust you. And give enemies what they need. You say, well, Pastor, you told me just I don't, I don't have to cave into enemies. No, enemies need, they don't need you to be an enemy. They need you to be something else that we'll talk about in just a minute. The summary statement is this. Keep your path clear. Keep your heart tender 
and your hands clean. Now let's think about some things as we move into this lesson. Remember that there was not yet an established line of succession to the throne of Israel. By the time of David, it would be assumed that the son succeeds the, uh, the father. But that was not the case. There was no there was no case. There was no, there was no example of what had gone on before. Saul, now don't forget Saul's story goes by quickly, but he was king for 40 years. And the stage was being set for the testing of three hearts, not only Saul and not only David, but also Jonathan. This is another series or another sermon for another time but Jonathan is one of the most perplexing individuals in the story of David because Jonathan would have been an excellent king. Jonathan was everything that you would want a king to be, but he was the most selfless um, individual in the narrative of David. And even though he knew that it would cost him the throne to be David's friend, he remained David's friend, and this is what he said. He said, everybody who is listening to God knows, David, that you are going to be king, and I want to make a promise to you. I will be seated right alongside you being your biggest supporter. I will be seated right alongside you, making sure everything you desire comes to pass. Jonathan is a man that's a bright light that passes away all too quickly. It wasn't fair what happened to Jonathan. It wasn't right what happened to Jonathan. But let me go back to my introduction. When you're dealing with people that hate you, don't look for what's fair and what's right. Now, who were David's allies? Well, the army of Israel were best seen as David's ally. You say, well, I would have thought David was their friend. They loved David. Yeah, but this is the difference between a friend and an ally. Whenever the king gave an order, the army became the enemy of David. That's the difference between a friend and an ally. A friend stays with you in every situation. An ally sees which way the wind is blowing. Or the ally believes your friendship is subservient to some other kind of allegiance. But allies on the good side can fill a role for a reason or for a season. Uh, you say, well, what is an ally good or bad? Allies are essential. There are people in your life that will never be your close friends. There are allies in your life that will never be allowed to, to come into the inner you, the, the inner sanctum, so to speak. But they have a connection with you. You can't bring everyone in your life to the level of close friendship. We are always to be friendly. We're always to treat people as friends. But most of our acquaintances won't become close friends. That's just the way it is. That's just the way it is. Um, but they are allies. Uh, and you say, well, I, I, I want to be everybody's friend. Can't happen. It can't happen because it is so expensive to have a friend. Having a friend is costly. It's costly for them. It's costly for you. And you're not wired to be. Now, you can be, you can be friendly with everyone and you can call everyone your friend. But when it gets right down to the bar fight time, they are either going to be a friend or an ally. And the situation will, will show you which. Some, some people are like footstools. 
they just let you prop your feet up to rest briefly. Some people are like rocking chairs or chairs at a table. They are to nourish you or comfort you. But then you've got other people that help you rest and recover. They're heavy-duty recliners. And loved ones, please understand, there's nothing wrong with being a footstool. There's nothing wrong with being a rocking chair or a chair at the table in someone's life. But every once in a while, you'll find a handful of people that are like heavy-duty recliners, and you just plop down on them. You push a button, and it does whatever you say. I love Jackson coming over to the house whenever he can. Where do you want to sit, buddy? I want to sit Papa's chair. Papa's chair. He's lost in it when he pushes the buttons. But friends are like that. Now, Jonathan, just follow me in your notes. The true friend was Jonathan. Let me say this about friends. Friends are our lifelong support. Stu Weber says there are different kinds of friends. He says there's a handful of piton friends. And what he's talking about is that thing that's driven into the side of a cliff when you're, when you're climbing the cliff, you hook the rope into it or you grab hold of it. What he says is there are piton friends that you can rest your existence on. You can rest your life upon. You, you see them and every time you see them, you know they'll take a bullet for you. Those are priceless treasures that we need to latch onto. And true friends are an exceedingly rare treasure. But let's go to the last designation, Saul. Saul was the enemy. Now, let me, let me say this. Those who are not friends aren't necessarily enemies. You, you have your true friends. In fact, you maybe even have circles of friends. But then you have folks that are acquaintances, they're allies, you love them, you serve them, you spend a lifetime together and it's fine, but it just doesn't go beyond a certain point. But not, people that are not your friends don't need to be your enemies. Just as there are depths and levels of friendship, there are depths and levels of other relationships and way down on the bottom is the role of an enemy. Now, I think I want to, I want to give you this, uh, never declare someone to be your enemy. If someone's going to be your enemy, let them do the declaring. Richard Nixon had a phenomenal success in foreign policy and other areas of government, but there was something that drove his life that when we look back on the life of Richard Nixon, and, and his successes outnumber his failures 10 to 1. But when we look back on the life of Richard Nixon, we think of him as a failed president. And it all started because of the disposition of his heart where he had an enemies list. He said, if this person doesn't say what I say, if this person doesn't believe what I believe, if this person opposes me in any way, they go on the enemies list. And loved ones, I want to tell you the worst thing, one of the worst things you can ever do in your life is to begin to designate people as enemies. In fact, I, I can say this, I, I've, I've had enemies, but I can say with an honest heart, I've never declared any of them to be an enemy. It's just the way they made choices. They ended up being an enemy, but it was a one-sided hate. And that's what you need to do. Let making enemies be their decisions. Now, we know that in the broad sense, we all have enemies. Paul talked about enemies of the cross. 
There are people that I don't even know their name, but they consider this church um, to, to be flawed and failing and, and a cult, and they don't believe the Bible, and yet they're enemies of the cross of Christ, but they're not our personal enemies. There are, there are other people that are just absolutely toxic in their relationship to you. In fact, I believe this. Are you guys with me here? Okay. I believe one of the things that the church needs, to, that society needs to rediscover, we need to get rid of this perverted sense of tolerance. And we need to, be, we need to recover the ability to say, this person's bad. And this person's relationship with me is toxic. We have said Christians need to be tolerant and what we've done is we've written off wisdom and we've allowed people and ministries and ministers and, and all kinds of, of isms into our life. And in the name of tolerance, we've become blithering idiots and we become poisoned by poisoned people. We become hateful because of hurtful people. And because they offer some kind of momentary uh, exhilaration in our lives, we bring them in close and don't understand that we are poisoning ourselves. I remember when I was a young pastor, I had a, a fellow that came and preached at my church. He came, he came frequently. He was a pretty big name. And what I later found out, well, let me say this first. His way of, of building me up to my congregation, I was my first pastor it's trying to survive. He would say, it's so good to be here with Brother Chitty. He's one of the rising stars in the assemblies of God. And I thought, oh, thank God somebody knows what's going on. <laughs> and then I talked to somebody. I said, yeah, we had so-and-so preach. He says, oh, yeah. He said, I love when he comes to my church. He says, I'm the rising star in the assemblies of God. Another fellow said, yeah, he says that about me too. And the whole group started laughing and I said, I'm the, I'm the fool of the group. And I started thinking, you know, the only time the Lord seemed to lead him to come to my church um, with a message was when he didn't have anywhere else to go. And you know what I found out? I found out that it was a very toxic relationship. But because it lifted my ego for 15 minutes during a week service, I allowed, I don't know how much damage to be done to me, to my ministry, to my church. I know you wouldn't think of doing that. But uh, th there are people that are just toxic. And then there are people that have made themselves your enemies. Paul said, beware of Alexander the coppersmith because he has done me much harm. Uh, he, John wrote of um, an individual in the churches who loved to have the preeminence. He said, stay away from this person. This person wants to be, in, be large and in charge. They want to be the, the, the rising star in the congregation. And John said, don't have anything to do with him. Loved ones, I don't mean we need to become critical, but we need to stop being suckered in by people who only associate with you to get something from you. Now, David had become the most famous and beloved warrior in Israel. Is that meddling or is that still preaching? That's okay. 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 Um, David had become the most famous and beloved warrior in Israel. 
Saul's torment would increase so much that he began to view David as his enemy. Can I tell you this? What's true of nations is, and what's true of cultures is also true of your friendships. Um, the scripture says this. Uh, it, it, it was speaking of a nation, but it's also true of a culture. And it can be said that it's also true of us as individuals. When we call that which is evil, good. And we call that which is good, evil. That's why we need to be careful in America. We need to pray for our culture. We need to pray for our mindset. Because the history of the last 2,000 years is that Christians are initially ridiculed. Then Christians are marginalized. Then Christians are persecuted. Then Christians are killed. You say, not in America. That's the pattern of the last 2,000 years. And I pray to God that our country doesn't go down that path. But it begins with us understanding who our friends are and who our friends aren't. And I know this sounds divisive and it's meant to be. Now, um, he made attempts to kill David in chapters 18 and 19. Number one, Saul tried to kill him up close and personal with the javelin. And David was just younger than Saul. You know, by this time, Saul's uh, probably 50 years old. Um, and uh, he's not as fast as he once was, but David still is. Reminded me of President Bush somewhere in the Middle East. They threw a shoe at him and he just kind of dodged and, and kind of laughed. But David didn't laugh. He realized he couldn't afford to give Saul another chance to kill him. So he would flee from his presence. Saul would calm down. Then he tried to have him killed on the battlefield. He put him in situations. Well, if I can't kill him, I'll keep my hands clean. I'll let the enemy do it. And it's basically a good plan if you want to kill somebody. It worked for David years later when he wanted to get rid of Uriah. Put him in the most difficult battles. And then he even said, uh, you, you need to have my, wife, my daughter as your wife. It had already been promised to him to the man that killed Goliath. But Saul didn't deliver on his promise. And Saul said, well, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll, I'll give you another chance. And uh, what I need you to do, now forgive my crudity here, but remember this wasn't modern day America. He said, all I need for you to pay me as a dowry for my daughter is a hundred foreskins off of dead Philistine soldiers. Now, I'd hate to have that assignment, number one. But number two, that would put him in the middle of hand-to-hand -hand combat with a ferocious enemy. And he said, he'll never survive that. And David, you know what? When your heart is pure, sometimes you're naive. And David said, a hundred foreskins. King, I wouldn't consider your daughter worth less than 200 foreskins. So David goes out, he kills 200 of the enemy, performs a post-mortem circumcision on them, brings it back, plops it down in front of the king and says, here's my dowry. And the king says, how did he survive this? So he gives him his daughter. 
Now one daughter had been promised, but he gave her to another man, broke his word to David. So he gave her his second daughter, Michael. Now in, in our English, the closest to that is Michelle, but in, in Hebrew, you don't find a shh sound very much. It's a, it's a hard sound. So the, the equivalent name, it's not the man's name, Michael, but it was the equivalent of our Michelle in our English language. And, and he gives her Michelle, uh, 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 Michael, as, as the, our English versions say, and they come to kill him. And this daughter is torn between loyalty to her dad and, and loyalty to her husband. And I, I know it's a tough thing to allow your princess to become someone else's queen, but you've got to let that princess become someone else's queen. And she spent the rest of her life torn between her husband and her father when she should have been devoted to her husband. And she did warn David and she deceived those that had come to kill him. But now Saul's tried to kill him up close. He's tried to kill him on the battlefield. Now he tries to kill him in the bedroom. And in the next chapter, it really gets intensified. We see four attempts in the next few verses to try to kill David. We'll talk about that next week. Now, what are the lessons? How do we wrap this thing up? You say, Pastor, you kind of got me depressed. I know. But can I tell you, before you end up fleeing into your wilderness, you usually flounder trying to work it out in your own strength. I, I, I know that's the pattern I've followed. Every time I face something bad, every time I've been in relationship with someone bad, like a King Saul, I, I end up floundering because I think I can make everyone like me. I can make everything better if I'll just work harder. And, and I want to tell you, one of, the, one of the best days of your life, every one of you are going to call me a liar over this. But one of your best days is when you come to the point where you realize I can't fix this brokenness. So I'm going into the wilderness because it's in the wilderness that God separates me unto himself. It's in the wilderness that I learned that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. It's the wilderness that I must cross before I get to the promised land. And we don't like that. You say, well, pastor, how'd you get to like it? As soon as I get to liking it, I'll let you know how I did it. You can learn a lesson without liking the lesson, can't you, Roy? You, you, can, you can, I got it. Don't like it, but I got it. Let me give you some, some things. As David, next week, David runs into the wilderness, or the events that lead him to run into the wilderness are what we're going to look at next week. But let's learn uh, four quick life lessons before we leave David in his place of confusion this week. The first thing that's a life lesson is we need to understand that we need to manage our relationship with our friends. And loved ones, let me tell you this, find friends that build you up, not that tear you down. Whether it's a Facebook, and I don't, I don't I, I, I'm not preaching against it, I'm just, I don't have any I don't have any social media except I text with a handful of people. And that's only, never mind. 
I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a friend and I'm not a fan of social media. I think social media gives away too much information about us. And I think it gives cowards a shield to hide behind. Uh, There was a day when you had a problem with someone, you confronted that person face to face, but now you can become heartless and cut people at a distance. And um, for every good thing, now you say, Pastor, I've got a ministry on Facebook. I'm sure that you do. But I'm saying on the whole, for every one good experience in Facebook, I see about 15 bad ones. Now, there are exceptions. I know there are exceptions. And please don't let Facebook be the only thing you get out of this message. But I've, I've learned to quit reading the comments about news articles. I've, I've learned to quit. I, I, I've learned I don't need other people's opinions. And what I am, am learning, even at my old age, is that I need to focus myself on friends that build you up, not tear you down. And as I said earlier, Christians today sacrifice discernment for a perverted sense of tolerance. We listen to twisted teaching on the internet, thinking that somehow it's making us more open and more wise, and all it's doing is polluting pure doctrine out of our own lives. We, 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 we sit down at a table with people that are toxic, and in the name of being tolerant with them, we don't have a clue that we've walked away with such toxicity in our life that it takes weeks for us to get over it. Hezekiah had a lot of wisdom. Um, when the Rabshakeh was coming from the king of Assyria and telling Hezekiah that they were going to come in and take over the land, it's interesting that the, the Rabshakeh poised it in terms of, we're your friends. We will give you everything that you need. He told those people on the wall, just give us a little time and we'll take you away. Sure, we'll take you away, but we'll take you away to a better land so that everything you need is before you. And I often wondered, are these people going to fall for the stupidity of this argument? A man who is armed for war has laid siege to your city and he stands around saying, be our friends because everything we're going to do is for your good. And it's gonna, you're going to find a better ruler under uh, Sennacherib than you will ever find under Hezekiah. But I want, to, I want to pat Israel on the back. I tell you what they did. They turned off that feed. They, the, the, they had been told by Hezekiah, don't answer a word. Don't get engaged with it. Don't, don't talk with the enemy. And loved ones, I'm going to tell you, we are in the information society. We are in the information culture. We are in the information age. And I'm telling you, in the name of the Lord, the day is coming And it's coming quickly when we have got to learn to turn off voices. And we've got to learn to turn off influence. We've got to say, I won't sit at the table with this. And as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. You will always find a better offer. You will always find a more thrilling personality. You will always find a more challenging, insightful statement. But the question is, what are you bringing into your home? What are you bringing into the hearts of your children? What are you bringing on the, to the, put at the table in your relationship with God? 
be careful what you listen to and understand that true friendships are worth a long-term investment. Number two, we talked about your relationship with friends. Let's talk about your relationship with God. Here is something we're going to see, especially next week. Next week, this is, going to, this is going to explode in our lives as we discuss the presence. David is going to teach us about the presence of God. In regard to your relationship with God, the greatest gift you can have is the favor of the Lord. You know, it says it about four times in the next two or three chapters that David just couldn't be stopped. Everything David set his hand to blossomed. Every trap set for him, it ended up ex exposing the enemy instead of catching David. Now, now, that doesn't mean that your problems are over. The warfare will ratchet up. Remember what we said in verse 28 and 29? When Saul realized that the Lord was with David, Saul became more afraid of him and remained his enemy to the rest of his days. This success, this favor of the Lord is the early indicator of a man being in pursuit of God's heart, of a woman being in pursuit of God's heart. I know in, I, I, I could name names like this of men and women, young men and women starting a career or starting a marriage. The list goes on and on. You look back on their life and God has helped them with this. God has helped them with that. God has helped them with the other. It's obvious the favor of God is upon them, but they're bogged down with why has he got me in this place with this stinking Saul? I know what it feels like. I know what it's like to be in a place where you're mismatched. You say, Pastor, you, you, you act like you just love us to death. I do. I, I mean it when I say I live in fear of assassination. Any pastor in his right mind would kill me to get this church. I love you. You treat me like royalty. I've never been happier than I have the last 25 years. And I mean that with all of my heart. You say, yeah, well, haven't you had some bad days? Yeah, but they, 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 were, they were so few and far between that I've, I've largely forgotten them. I have to stop and think what I've been mad about at times. I've just assumed it was my wife. I can't, I don't even remember. <laughs> hey, believe me, it probably wasn't her. But I want to tell you this, whenever, whenever you get your eyes on the wrong thing, you can forget all that God has done for you and you can say some of the silliest things, not understanding that the Lord, your God, is the one holding you up, taking you from victory to victory. And you say, well, why do I have this Saul? God will take care of the Sauls in your life. God will move you to the different job. God will move that person out of your life. God will cause you. Some of you are going to see God work against enemies and you're going to see the, the uh, Hamans uh, of your life hung on their own uh, gallows that they made for you. Just as occurred with Mordecai in the book of Esther. But loved ones, you've got to understand, you've got to become convinced. I can't do it. Your husband can't do it. Your wife can't do it. Your best friend can't do it. You, you've got to come to the, you've got to fight through this yourself. Since God is for me, who can be against me? What shall separate me from the love of God? And nothing, the answer is nothing. I said that one time, somebody said, yeah, but it says, if God is for me, 
I don't know if God, I would give you a lesson about the Hena clause and the Greek text of it, but it does not say, that's the English translation. It does not say if God is for me in the sense of maybe he is, maybe he isn't. The better translation is since we know. One translation from a scholar says, since it is obviously true that God is for us. Loved ones, the devil is the devil of question marks. God is the God of exclamation points. And I want to tell you, it's not if God is for you. It's since it is painfully obvious that God is for you. Who can be against you? You say, well, I don't feel that way. I know. How'd you get over it, pastor? I whined and complained and belly ached. And lived five years in a state of mind where I thought it was better to be dead than to be alive. And in my stupidity, I called out to God. And I said, oh Lord, help me, something's not right. And can, did, would you believe I was shocked when he told me it was me? Ask God to give you a revelation of his love. Don't, don't beat yourself up. That's what I did. When I'd begin to get my senses back, I'd just beat myself senseless. But I said, God, show me how much you love me. Show me. I challenge you to do this. Over the next two weeks, say, God, show me how you think of me. Show me what you think of me. Show me how much you love me. And you know what it's like when you really love someone, whether it's that newborn baby or whether it's that rebellious toddler or whether it's that know-it-all adolescent. When you really love somebody, you can get frustrated with them, but you would not allow one moment of harm to come to them. You might want to kill them, but you won't let anybody else kill them. Loved ones, I, this isn't in my notes, but if you could just begin to understand how much God loves you, if you could just get a glimpse that you are the apple of his eye, if you could just understand that you're hurting nobody but yourself when you push his love away, the greatest gift you can have is the favor of the Lord and you've got it. You've got it. Well, if God loved me, why did he let me go through all of this stuff to, just to face this, this king? Well, why did, he, why did he get you through all of this stuff? Do you think that God would bring you this far to leave you? Now, there are rivers we must cross. There are mountains we must climb. But God does not take us halfway up the mountain to abandon us. He does not take us halfway through the river to let us drown. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. Let's go on to number three. You, you guys are dragging. <laughs> Let's understand something about your relationship with your enemies. Understand the jealousy and envy of enemies. Understand the, the hatred of Satan. Understand the situation. I, I want to tell you, and, and let's, let's just focus on people for just a moment. If there are people that consider themselves your enemies, understand that jealousy and envy has no rational cause. 
Don't beat yourself up saying, well, maybe if I acted this way, it would go away. Or what did I do to cause them to act this way? That's what David said. Hatred and jealousy and envy has no rational cause. There's no rational cause of racism. There's no rational cause of hatred. It's, it's, it's not something where you follow, well, this is why we feel this way. Jealousy and envy not only have no rational causes, but they have no rational boundaries. It will cover, it'll spill over into every area of your life. And can I tell you that jealousy and envy are usually unresolvable. That's why you've got to decide if you're going to spend the rest of your life fighting these battles or if you're going to move on. Therefore, this is number four, engage in the processes of watchfulness. As you navigate these relationships in your life, always be aware of your surroundings. And if someone treats you wrong, what does the Bible say is the best way to deal with them? Opposite behavior. You know, we like to bind spirits. We like to take authority and expel this and expel that. But do you know, I think the most effective spiritual warfare is opposite behavior. Bless those that curse you. Do good to those who despitefully use you. I want to tell you, if you feel the stronghold over a city is pride, then the, the way to deal with that may not necessarily be casting down a spirit of pride. The way to do it may be fall on your own face and let hum, uh, humility operate through you. Learn the principle of opposite behavior. David had a chance, we'll read about later, David had a chance at least twice to kill Saul. But he took the attitude, my, my, he took the exact opposite approach of Saul. Saul knew David was anointed, so he said, I will kill him. David said, I must not touch the Lord's anointed. You say, well, he, Saul didn't deserve to be called the Lord's anointed. Oh, I know, he forfeited that a long time ago. God had already taken his blessing off of him. But as far as David was concerned, until God removed him, he was still the Lord's anointed. Be patient, give God time. Now, let me, let me end it with three summary statements. See if I can do it in 20 seconds. No, I can't. Here's number one. Treat friends as a treasure. I know even your closest friends, there are times you need to pull away and give them space. But you never let go of true friends. You never let go of true friends. You say, well, how, how, do, how do you know you're someone's true friend? It's, it's, it's like when I ask my mom, how do you know if you're in love? She said, uh, it's a funny little thing shaped like a lizard goes first to your heart, then to your gizzard. And I said, I don't understand what you mean. And this is how she summarized it. She said, love is something better felt than telt. And I want to tell you something. People that are genuinely true friends, they usually grow into that and they are usually in that relationship long before they know they are can't force it. But when you find it, give it, give it the treatment that it deserves. Treat it like a treasure. That's number one. How do I treat my allies? Well, allies may not be quite at the level of those close friends. And, and again, this is not an exact science. An ally can be a friend. 
And a friend can be an ally. I understand that. But I'm talking about for those people that you'd say, well, they're not my close friends, but they are on my side. We are allies together. Well, you treat them well. You, you, give, you treat them the way you want to be treated. And you realize that they may have Ziklag moments. The, the allies of David uh, ended up being 600 men and 300 that were closer than the other 300. And out of that 300, there were 40 that got even closer to David, and then there were three mighty ones. But you know what? When, when you read, and that's one of the last lessons we'll look at is being a mighty man, or woman, of course. Every one of those men were ready to kill David at one point at Ziklag, that's the nature of being an ally. In fact, sometimes your closest friends were ready to kill you at one point because they were allies instead of friends. But understand that allies serve a very noble purpose. You serve a purpose in each other's lives. Cherish your allies. And then number three, let God deal with your enemies. Let God deal with your enemies. Richard Nixon didn't learn to let God deal with his enemies, whether they were real or imagined. And it cost him the White House. It cost him his reputation in history. I, I, I think when American history is, is written through the ages, I think Richard Nixon will never be um, credited with what he should be credited for because the biggest thing in his life was his enemies list. I'll sick the IRS on them. I'll sue them. I'll do this. I'll do the other. And you can, you can have that same opportunity. You can choose to deal with your enemies. And, and you know what? You can be 100% right and your enemy 100% wrong. You can be 100% right, but your attitude make you 100% wrong. Kingdom of God doesn't work the same way earthly kingdoms do. Now, what do I do from here, Pastor? Well, this is the last, this is the last sermon where we're just going to dwell on this, on the demon-possessed enemies. Next week, we're going to talk about the presence. We're going to talk about the presence but before we leave this, as we start out on the rest of this journey, how are you going to travel? Are you going to travel demanding that you be treated fairly and justly? And that you will make an enemy of anyone that doesn't treat you right? There's a movie years ago, one of Clint Eastwood's best called The Outlaw Josie Wales. And in, and in that movie, some of you are murmuring in the spirit, I hear. <laughs> but in that movie, the statement was, was made, where are we going to find Josie Wales? And one of the government officials says, Wales is an easy man to track. Leaves dead bodies everywhere he goes. And we kind of chuckle when that's Josie Wales. But you know what? I've known Christians just like that. They leave dead bodies everywhere they go. Never been a church that was right. Never been a pastor that was right. Never been a congregation that was right. Never been a decision from the district that was right. It, it, their life is plagued by it's just not right. And you know the scary thing is that sometimes it's just not right. 
the question is, are you going to serve the purposes of God and are you going to learn about friends, allies, and enemies? Because once you learn that, you can get through the, the wilderness. Once you go through that, you can preserve your legacy. But we got to get past this foundation. Father, in the name of Jesus, we're out of time. I know that. And I know that you're telling me to go on as long as I'd like, but I don't know if anybody would believe me if I said it. No, I'm teasing. Father, some of us are hurting so badly. Some of us have done everything we know to do to please you, but we are in a tough place. There's a king that hates us. It, it may be a person, it may be a job, maybe circumstances. Lord, I don't know what the king's name is, but we're here and we're hurting. And, and Father, I know I've kind of poked fun at us a little bit because I'm the poster child for a complainer sometimes. We've all done it. But Father, the fact of the matter is some are hurting beyond, beyond their ability to really bear up under it. Everything they've invested feels like it's being threatened. Everything that they've done, they feel like it's laughing at them in mockery. Father, whatever the reason, we want to be everything you want us to be. We want to please you, but we are hurting and we need you to help us. It doesn't mean that the king's going to go away, but it does mean you're going to protect us from the king. You're going to teach us how to be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. Loved ones, we're going to do this a little different than we usually do. Please just keep your uh, eyes closed and heads bowed for just a moment. I want to ask this question. If you're here, it's just between me and you. I'm not asking anyone else to look around at you. But if you're here and you just say, Pastor, I, I, the details may be different. But I am hurting. I, I have been hurt. I am frustrated. I feel abandoned. I am in pain in my spirit and soul today. And I'm hurting. I want you to pray for me. Would you lift your hand, lift it real high so that I can see. In fact, I'm going to put my glasses on so I can be sure I'm seeing real well. Hold it up. That's it. Hold it up. I'm hurting, Pastor. I'm hurting. God knows I'm hurting. Okay, God bless you. You can put, put your hands down. Now, I, want to, I, I wasn't trying to trick you. I just want to ask you to come a step further. I'm not going to fuss at you if you don't because God can touch you where you are. But we want to pray for you. And if you lifted your hand and said, I'm hurting, we want to pray for you. In fact, you may be out there and you say, Pastor, you gave up too quick. I should have lifted my hand. Well, if you didn't lift your hand, but you should have, I want to pray for you too. If you're here and you're hurting, it doesn't matter the circumstance. It doesn't matter who the king is. But if you're hurting and you want the Lord to help you, would you just slip out of your seat and come stand in this altar area? We want to pray for you. Would you come right now? This is just an old-fashioned altar call. Raise your hand and come running. That's it. Come on.